0: This morning we begin a brand new series entitled, When Bad Things Happen to God's People. A series that will take us several weeks to get through. One of the faithful missionaries, Captain Alan Gardner, experienced many physical difficulties and hardships through his service to the Savior. Despite his troubles, he said, While God gives me strength, failure will not daunt me. In 1851, at the age of only 57, He died of disease and starvation while serving on Picton Island on the southern tip of South America. When his body was found, his diary lay nearby. It bore the record of hunger, thirst, wounds, and loneliness. The last entry in his book showed the struggle of his shaking hand as he tried to write legibly these words. I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. How can that be? There's a man who's hungry, he's thirsty, he's been beaten, he's lonely. He served God with all his life and without all his heart. Now his life is taken from him. He's died because he could not get enough to eat or he died because of disease. Yet he says in his last moments of life, I'm overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. There was a man, I suggest to you, who understood the problem of pain. This morning we're going to be talking about the problem of pain. For I share this story of Captain Alan Gardner as a good way to launch this new series of when bad things happen to God's people. Notice that Cara Groblar in creating the PowerPoint presentation for this new series has turned the word, word people upside down. We can all relate to that, can't we? You ever had times in your life where you felt like things have been turned upside down on you? We all have. We've all dealt with pain. We've all dealt with suffering. This morning, we'll look at that foundational message in this new series called The Problem of Pain. And here's what I want you to see. The problem of pain can be overcome when we look at it from God's perspective. The problem of pain can be overcome when we look at it from God's perspective. Harold S. Kushner, a Jewish rabbi, wrote the well-known book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. You'll notice for the title of this new series, I've simply changed one word from the title of his best-selling book. And that one word is people. What kind of people? Not just good people, but the word I've changed is God's people. When bad things happen to God's people. Why have I changed the word? Because none of us are completely and perfectly good. You remember Jesus' conversation with that rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18? Verses 18 and 19 say... Then a certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus replied, No one is good except God alone. What Jesus was trying to get across to that young man was the absolute holiness of God and his own identity and divinity as the Son of God, but also the truth of Romans 3.23. For we have all sinned and fallen short of God's perfect plan for our lives. We're sinners. Saved sinners maybe, but still we started out as just sinners. That had to be saved by the goodness of God. With that bit of understanding, let's look at the central question of Rabbi Kushner's book, which is The Problem of Pain. And I place that idea as number one with this question. What kind of God would let good people suffer? You know, people still ask that. Rabbi Kushner's book didn't answer their question. They still ask that question. What kind of God would let good people suffer? Why did Kushner write his 1981 book, When Bad Things Happened to Good People? Well, he'd had a personal tragedy in his own life. His son Aaron had died from a premature aging disease. And in working through the loss of his son... Rabbi Kushner immersed himself in the Old Testament book of Job. And as we continue with this series, we'll actually spend a couple of Sundays in the book of Job. But for right now, what I want you to see is that in his book, Kushner makes three claims that he says come from the book of Job. Three claims he says come from the book of Job. Kushner's first claim is that since Job is a good man, his suffering is unjust. Since Job is a good man, his suffering is unjust is unjust. You've probably read the book of Job. Or if you haven't read the 42 chapters of the book of Job, you probably know the storyline of the book of Job. Job was a good and godly man with a large and loving family, vast material possessions, and in great health. until Satan came along. Satan accused Job of loving and serving God merely because of the benefits he received from it. But Satan said to God, take your blessings away from Job and he will curse you to your face. And the rest of the book of Job deals with how Job dealt with the problem of pain. Now there's no question that Job was a good man. In fact, we might say he was a great man. Job chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. And when the Bible says that someone is blameless, it doesn't mean that they are morally and spiritually perfect. It just means they're mighty good folks. Are you with me? They're mighty good folks. And Job was a mighty good folk. He was a very good man. And as Job suffered as terribly as he did in the loss of his family, his fortune and his health, he increasingly grew to feel and to believe that God was not treating him fairly. In Job chapter 27 verse 6, he asserts, I will maintain my innocence and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. He is saying that he has done nothing wrong that deserves the kind of punishment he is facing. Have you ever felt the way that Job felt? Have you ever felt that you were being punished for something that you didn't do? That's the way Job felt. And we've all felt that way from time to time. Whether it was something big, or something small, or something in between. We've all felt that we were being punished More than we deserved. And it made us kind of angry. And if you read the book of Job, you'll see that he got angry. As he dealt with what he believed was unfair. Secondly, Kushner claims, if Job's suffering is unjust, then God is either not all good or not all powerful. If Job's suffering is unjust, then God is either not all good or not all powerful. When I was in school, we used to have to read the Bible and pray every morning. That ended about 1962. It tells you how old I am. But the bottom line is, there were a couple of scriptures that were just all-time favorites. I mean, they were short, they were easy to read, they were familiar, and the 100th Psalm was one of them. Psalm 100 verse 5 says, For the Lord is good, and His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. And if we had time this morning, we could share story after story with one another of God's goodness in our own lives. How He's been good to us. i me share a story with you. Yesterday having a, a miter saw and, and just needing a, a little bitty piece of molding to finish up something I was trying to do. And I, I'd run out of all of it except this little bitty piece. And I knew better than to try to hold that little piece of molding and cut it with that miter saw. You know what I did? I tried it anyway. And it's a wonder that saw didn't pull my fingers in because it just it shattered the piece of wood. And that's another story of God's goodness to an ignorant man. <laughs> right? Stubborn. I knew not to do it when I did it. Stubborn. God's good to us in so many ways. In addition, the Bible's frequent testimony to the goodness of God leaves Kushner with what he believes is his only alternative claim. He comes to the conclusion that if God is all good, then thirdly, God is not all powerful. God is not all powerful, according to Harold Kushner, the rabbi. He's very uncomfortable saying that God is not all good, so he believes the only alternative left for him is to say that God is not all powerful. That God wants to make the right and good and just, fair decisions. He wants to make those things happen, but he just lacks the power to make it happen. He bases his conclusion on his very own and his very odd translation of Job's speech, or God's speech rather, to Job at the end of the book, where Kushner has God say to Job, if you think that it's so easy to keep the world running straight and true, to keep unfair things happening to people, then Job, you try it. Now, I've got to be honest with you, friend, that's not even a good paraphrase of what the Bible says. But that's how Kushner translated it. According to Kushner, God wants the world to go well. He wants to keep cruelty and chaos from claiming their innocent victims. He wants to guard human beings from natural disasters and ravaging diseases. But he just can't pull it off. It's not because he's not good. He wants these things to happen. He just doesn't have the power to make them happen. Of course, there are all kinds of problems with Kushner's conclusion. The most obvious is that his conclusion is contradictory to everything else found in the book of Job as well as in the entire Bible. Even the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, knew that. After God humbled him in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, he says, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praise the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Dear friend, those are verses that deal with the almighty power of God. He is the all-powerful God. Verse 35 testifies to that sovereign power. And over and over again in the Scripture, the question is raised to us, is there anything too hard for the Lord? And over and over again, the answer is a resounding no. God can do anything. Indeed, Rabbi Harold Kushner's answer to why bad things happen to good people is neither biblical nor is it beneficial. We have sympathy for the rabbi. Some of us understand what it is to lose a child. We have sympathy for him. Yet at the same time, we understand that he was only working with half the Bible. As a Jewish rabbi, the only part he believed in was what? The Old Testament. We're working with the whole Bible. And the greater portion of God's revelation, of course, is found in the New Testament. Where Jesus Christ is the Zenith. Of God's revealing himself to mankind. So let me spend the time that we have left this morning. Talking about the problem of pain from God's perspective. As we ask the questions. What can we learn through pain? What can we learn through pain? C.S. Lewis tasted pain in ways that few of us can relate to. He lost his mother at an early age. Became disconnected emotionally from his father. Suffered from a respiratory illness as a teenager. fought. And was wounded in World War One, and finally had to bury his beloved wife, Joy Davidman, after being married to her for only four years. through all of that c s Lewis dealt with his pain as he struggled with that. He wrote a book entitled "The Problem of Pain." He copied my title for this sermon this morning <laughs> in his book, Lewis penned one of the most famous lines he said. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain, and it's His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In other words, there are some things that God can only teach us through pain. We will not learn them any other way. They're most effectively taught to us through pain. So this morning, let's talk about what we can learn by pain talk to you about five things Uh, as we begin this. Let me share with you that if you went to a a Christian counselor to get this kind of information, you'd have to make ten visits, okay? So, uh, you know, figure out what ten times that visit is and you'll know how much this information is valuable to you this morning. The first thing we learn from pain. In our limited wisdom, we cannot understand all the ways of an all-wise God. In our limited understanding, we cannot understand all the ways of an all-wise God. When talking about the problem of pain, Kushner only spoke of the goodness of God and the power of God. But there's something essential to this argument that has to be brought in as well, and it is the wisdom of God. Notice, if you will, the triad of divine virtues up on the screen. At the top, there's God's goodness. If you can't see it at the bottom, on the left, there is God's power. On the right, there is God's wisdom. That's the triad of divine virtues. And philosophers take these divine virtues and they they say that if God is all good and all wise, but there's still evil in the world, it must be because God lacks the power to conquer evil. Or, if God is all wise and all powerful, there's still evil in the world, it must be because God lacks the goodness to rid the world of evil. In other words, God's got a mean streak inside him somewhere. Or, they say that if God is all good and all powerful, but there's still evil in the world, it must be because God lacks the wisdom to know how to get rid of the evil. That's, that's philosophy. Those are philosophers who say that. But they deal with those three things. The goodness of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God. Yet God's wisdom is the very virtue that Job speaks to God about in the 42nd and final chapter of his book. In Job chapter 42, verses 2 through 6, Job says to God, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. There, dear friend, is the power of God. I know that you can do all things and no plan of yours can be thwarted. There's the power of God. But immediately he begins to speak of the wisdom of God after that. He says, you, God, asked me, who is this that obscures my counsel, my wisdom, without knowledge? Surely, Job says, I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You, O God, said to me, Listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will answer me this time. And Job responds by saying, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. The truth is that with our limited, finite wisdom, we cannot understand the infinite wisdom of God. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, the verses that were read to you a few moments ago by Josh. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Often, when frustrating, disappointing, or even tragic events happen in our lives, we don't understand why these things happen, and we become angry at God and at others. I remember the story of a husband whose wife was suffering from terminal cancer in the hospital. In that hospital, there was a chapel. And in that chapel, there was a life-size statue of Jesus. And that husband had gone into that hospital chapel time after time to pray that God would save and spare his wife. But she died. And they say he ran out of that hospital as the hospital staff was very concerned. He was in deep anguish. Twenty minutes later, he comes walking back in. Oddly enough, he had gone to a bakery. He had in his hand a pie. He walked into that chapel with the pie that he had bought at the bakery and threw that pie into the face of Jesus. Is that a terrible thing for someone to do? Well, look at it this way. Do we disown a baby because it screams and beats on us as parents? And yells... Because it cannot understand what's going on in its world. We don't disown our children because they show their frustration to us. Why then should God disown His children because we show our frustration to Him? He won't disown us for that. He knows we can't understand why pain comes into our lives sometimes. Because we can't understand God's greater purpose in life. Secondly. We can learn that God sometimes tests the authenticity of our faith through pain. God sometimes tests the authenticity of our faith through pain. Psalm 11 verses 4 through 5 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous. And then First Peter chapter 1, verses, 1 verses 6 through 7, In this heavenly inheritance you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you must suffer through various trials, so that the authenticity of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is also tested by fire, may result in praise, honor, and glory when Jesus Christ returns. See, life is full of tests. They're tests of our endurance, test of our courage, test of our integrity, test of our faith. In fact, what the Book of Job is all about is testing. Job was being tested. Would Job continue to love and serve God, even if all God's blessings were taken away from him? Would you still believe in a God when it seems that He has deserted you? That was the question that Job was wrestling with. Corrie ten Boom, whose book, The Hiding Place, tells the story of how she and her family hid Jewish people from the Nazis during the Holocaust in their home in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. The Ten Boom family was caught by the Nazis and sent to various concentration camps. And most of them died in those concentration camps. Corey wrote, often I have heard people say how good God is. We prayed that it would not rain for our church picnic and look at the lovely weather. Yes, God is good when he sends good weather. But God, Corey writes, was also good when he allowed my sister Betsy to starve to death before my eyes in a German Concentration camp. I remember one occasion when I was very discouraged there. Everything around us was dark. And there was darkness also in my own heart. I remember telling Betsy that I thought God had forsaken us. No, Corey, said Betsy. He has not forgotten us. Remember his word in Psalm 103. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Corey concluded, there's an ocean of God's love available. There's plenty for everyone. May God grant you never to doubt that victorious love, whatever your circumstances might be. God tests us, not because He doesn't know what's in us. God tests us so that we might learn what we are made of. That's why the test. Thirdly, it's also true that we can learn as Christians, God promises to take our pain and work it for our good. As Christians, God promises to take our pain and work it for our good. That's not true for non-Christians, by the way. It's only Christians that God makes that promise to. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29 says, And we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him. To those who are called according to His purpose. That we might be conformed to the image of His Son. Notice that God's purpose... And our good are one in the same. Our purpose and our good are found in verse 29. And that is to be conformed to the image of God's Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So becoming Christ-like is God's great purpose of your life. God's great purpose for your life and for my life. is not that we get the big home that we've always wanted. Or the dream job that we always wanted. Or we can retire with lots of money. Or we can have a dozen children. Ashley Ann, you said no to that? Okay. right. Just an illustration. Okay. That's not God's purpose. God's purpose for our lives is that we become more Christ-like. We become more Christ-like. A week ago Saturday, my older brother Gordon and I, his wife Brenda, celebrated their 40th, wedding anniversary with a marriage vow renewal down on St. George Island in Florida. When you've got a family member that has cancer, you never know what the future's going to hold or how long you've got. And we prayed that this day would come. And it came. And we were so very thankful for it. But anyway, like a kid, my favorite part of any wedding is always the cake. I've got to be honest with you. And boy, it was a good cake now. But the ingredients of a cake taken separately are not even palatable. I mean, think about it for a moment. Raw eggs, flour, even that much sugar doesn't even sound good to eat. But get a good cook to take those same ingredients and mix them all together. As Romans 8.28 says, God works all things Together. He mixes all things together. For our good. Take that good cook with those same ingredients. Mix them together in the right proportions. Put them in an oven. Cook them for the right length of time and at the right temperature. And Vila, you have a what delicious cake. You have a cake that's wonderful. And that's what God does in our lives. He takes the individual situations and circumstances of our lives, both good and bad, and works them together in such a way that He develops within us Christ-likeness, which is God's purpose for our lives. Fourth thing we can learn through pain is that pain is sometimes the consequence of our sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. In other words, sin has consequences. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 puts that thought this way. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Sin is one possibility as to why pain may come into our lives. It is not the only possibility. But it is one possibility as to why pain may come into our lives. And the problem with Kushner, at least one problem, with Kushner and his book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People is that he, like the rabbis of Jesus' day, thought that whenever something bad happened to someone, it was always because they had done something bad. They believed that suffering was always the result of sin. Job teaches us that's not true. The rest of the Bible teaches us that that is not true. But they seem to believe that sin was not just one possible; it was the only possibility Of why bad things happen to us. Remember what we've said before. Though sin always causes suffering. Suffering is not always the result of sin. Suffering can have many different sources. Then lastly. And most importantly. The thing we can learn about pain. Is that the pain that Christ suffered was the price of our redemption. The pain that Christ suffered was the price of our redemption. In 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 19 through 25. Peter writes these words. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering. Because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating. For doing what is wrong and endure it. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it. That is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you. Leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him. He did not retaliate. When He suffered, He made no threats. Instead, He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by His stripes you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. At the close of a revival service many years ago, a man approached Dr. D.M. Stearns with a criticism. He said to him, I don't like the way that you preach. I don't care for all your talk about Christ dying for the lost. Instead of preaching the death of Christ on the cross, why don't you preach some modern themes? Preach about Jesus, the great teacher and example. Dr. Stearns asked the man, would you then be willing to follow Christ? If I preach Him as the great example, the man said, I would. I would follow in His steps. And Dr. Stearns said, then let us take the first step. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 22 tells us that Jesus committed no sin. Can you take that step? The man was a bit confused, but he finally said, oh, no I cannot. I, I honestly admit that I do sin. Well then, said Dr. Stearns, can't you see how your first need of Christ is not as an example, but as your Savior? And what Dr. Stearns said to that man, he says to every one of us, the first step we must take when it comes to Jesus Christ, is making Him our Savior and not our example. The example will come later. But what comes first is our need for a Savior. The pain that Jesus endured on the cross was the price of our redemption. Have you taken that step of making Christ your Savior? The most important step and the first step that any of us can take. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would help us now to make the decisions that would please you. May your spirit touch our hearts. May you speak to us. And may we obey you. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.